Oh my goodness, what a great time of worship. Thank you to the worship team for all their efforts and for what God's done. Take your Bibles, turn to really Genesis chapter 3. Um, I'll read some other passages. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read a lot of passages this morning, but I want to focus on Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and following. There has probably never been a time in human history where the pace of change is as rapid as it's been over, I mean, you can narrow it down to 20 years, but particularly over the last 100 to 150 years, the pace of change is absolutely just incredible and remarkable. Um, I I love watching uh, shows on PBS or listening to NPR or any other nerdy thing you can kind of talk about. Uh, I love that stuff. And I was listening to this broadcast, which had to do with ice. Yes, there was a whole show on ice. Um, Because, if you think about it, throughout human history, ice was a luxury, not a... I mean, it wasn't something you could just go to your refrigerator door and... I mean, ice in many parts of the world were never even seen, had never been seen. And beginning in the middle 1800s, a guy in the northern part of the United States felt like if he could get ice to the south, he could become a really rich guy. And so he made the attempt, because remember back in the mid-1800s, all ice was natural ice. There was no means to make ice. It was God forming the ice and them cutting it up. And the northern states had ice aplenty and would figure out a way to save it. But in the south, we didn't have any ice to speak of. So he went to great lengths and failed numerous times in getting ice to the south, but eventually came up with a system where he could transport ice with that. Because, you know, you got your problem if you're trying to get ice to the south. How am I going to get it there without melting? I know you're smart people and you're thinking about this, but in those days there was no way to get it there other than some natural means. He figured out sawdust and all other things that would keep it more frozen. Ice houses that he had to have built, so once he got it here, it could be stored. He became a very, very rich man as a result of ice. Until somebody thought, with the Industrial Revolution, what if we found a way to create artificial ice? Hence, a great move was started to figure out a way to create ice artificially, which then led to refrigerators, which then led to air conditioning, which then all of those things came from an effort to produce what we now have on a regular basis, artificial ice. If you think about the change in humanity as a result of people's efforts to make artificial ice, And the growth of the South and the explosion, the population explosion of states like Alabama, Georgia, Florida as a result of air conditioning. I mean, the the pace of change of things we take for granted over the last hundred years has been unbelievable. I remember the first time I ever saw a color television. That's how old I am. Or a CD player. Or a cell phone. Or the internets. I mean, I remember, I remember my first exposure to all of those things, yet now they're just, we can't live without them. They're commonplace. 
But these things, these technological advances, pale in comparison to the rate of change that has occurred in our understanding and belief of sex, marriage, gender, family over the past 50 years. When I was a boy, we watched reruns of I Love Lucy on a black and white TV that got three channels with the antenna that just stunk. Ricky and Lucy had separate single beds. They didn't even, they're married. A married couple didn't even sleep in the same bed. Now, you're going to be hard-pressed to watch any show on network television where couples don't have sex on the first date, if you can even call it a date. Our thinking of what's acceptable, not acceptable, has radically been altered. When Obama was elected president before his first term, he was in favor of what he called, quote, a traditional definition of marriage six years ago. Now you're condemned in the public arena if you hold to a traditional view of marriage. Just a a month or two ago, the uh, the mayor of Atlanta fired the police chief because the police chief had written um, a devotion for his church in which he said homosexuality, according to the Bible, was a sin. In the public arena, you're going to be hard-pressed to hold to a traditional view of marriage. Just 20 years ago, a pregnancy outside of marriage was nothing to be shouted from the mountaintops. Now you'll see them addressed on and announced on Facebook on a regular basis. Now I'm thrilled that these young ladies are choosing life over abortion, But our mentality about what is acceptable has totally, radically, and I would say in our culture, forever been altered. If you think we're going to go back to some beliefs that we and you and I hold in our cultural setting, I would say probably not or not at all. How did we get here? In his book called The Closing of the American Mind, author Alan Bloom says the following, the danger they have been taught to fear, talking about young people, is not error but intolerance. Do you you hear that? The thing that we've been taught to fear is not that we're in error or could be wrong, but rather intolerance toward what could be wrong. Relativism, I can't even say that word, relativism, is necessary to openness, and this is the virtue, the only virtue which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating in our young people. Openness and the relativism that makes it plausible is the right, not right, excuse me, is the great insight of our times. I don't know if you kind of catch what he's saying, but he's saying there's error And then there's openness. The thing we've embraced in our culture is openness. Error is not the issue. Openness is the issue. Not only that, but for us to get there, openness has to be embraced as the ultimate virtue over anything else. William Watkins, in a book he calls The New Absolutes, says that there are different absolutes that have been 
now embraced within the American culture in place of traditional moral values, and these new absolutes emphasize things like, these are what he would call the new absolutes. Are you with me? They are tolerance, non-judgmentalism, and openness to those that are different. So, so what is absolute? Whatever is right for you. The only absolute that can really be embraced is that you can't say anything wrong about someone else's belief system. If you do, you're absolutely wrong. To take a stand really on any issue other than to say be a perfect whatever you are. This deep commitment to tolerance and openness has changed the way we view marriage, family, sex, gender, life. How do we, how do we as Christians navigate our way through this new position? Here's my premise. Obviously, I'm starting a series on the family today. And we're going to talk about some tough issues in the days ahead. What does marriage look like? What is gender? What is being male? What is being female? What is, how do we embrace singleness and sacrifice and celibacy and other S words? Some of you will get that later. This morning, I want to build a foundation for the rest of the series. Because I I would contend this, that what we're facing is really not new at all. As a matter of fact, I would say it's just an old lie in new clothing, if clothing is even involved. There's a series about family over these next eight weeks, and I want to tackle some of these tough issues about what is the modern family Now, for those of you who do not watch television and are culturally irrelevant, um, there is a very popular show on television called The Modern Family. The Modern Family is one of the most popular, most uh, awarded shows over the last five and a half years. It follows the life of Jay Pritchett and his family, all of whom live in suburban Los Angeles. Pritchett's family includes his second wife and her son from a previous relationship. It also includes his two adult children and their spouses and children. His daughter is married and has three children. His son is gay and in a committed homosexual relationship with an adopted daughter. The whole concept of this television show is what does the modern family look like? Traditional, blended, gay. And that this is what the modern family is, looks like now and is going to look like in the future. The highest virtue that's extolled in this series, if you really watch it very much, and I, honestly I've seen it, it's very funny, very cleverly written, Uh, very well acted, but the highest virtue that is extolled in this show is that family is kind of whatever you make of it as long as you stick together. 
In the end, they fight with one another, they have problems, but by the end of almost every episode, they rally to one another and protect one another. I'd like to speak about, in this series, the modern family. And is there a truth that we can hold out to the people of around us? Now listen to this. That is both true and winsome. Are, are you hearing me? True and winsome. We in the Christian community have too often held out a view, I contend, of truth that is also judgmental. Truth that who would want to come to it? I think we should, we have the, the words of life that God has given us. How do, we, how do we navigate through these challenging and difficult times? These time of change. Because again, my contention is if you think we're going to go back to a 50s and 60s view of the family, I, that cow is out of the barn. I mean, we're way on down the road from that. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Let me build a foundation so that we can have a place of agreement, hopefully, uh, for the days ahead and what we're going to look like. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 says this. This is a passage, by the way, that's very key to us as a church because it's our really our foundational thematic passage. Paul starts a prayer that I close every service with where I say, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. He starts it by saying this, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Here's the question that we all have to answer at some point. Who defines what family is? Who defines what family is? If we don't get this, this, we're going to struggle with a lot of what I'm going to say in the days ahead. I want to make this confession too. I, I got this outline from a sermon I heard probably 25 years ago at a conference. The basic ideas of this outline. I, I got it at a conference and I take notes and then I'll file them away if I think something's really good and then I'll pull it out and I'll rework it. And Just to let you know, not everything you get is totally original with me. I'm more like a pharmacist. I'm just passing on things that I know or that, that'll work at times. But I want to give credit where credit's due. So I went out on the, the Internet to try and find. I thought, with the Internet, even though it's 20, 25 years old, surely I can find who. Because what happened was I took the notes, but I forgot to who, say who preached the sermon. I knew it was at a conference, and I wrote. Uh, it was a life conference way back, like I said. I think that was the name of it, 25, 30 years ago. I was in Texas at the time. I'm going on and on about this, but I have a point. Um, I went out on the internet to find this sermon, and I found it ten times. Ten times preached by ten different people, none of whom gave credit to where it was originally (laughs) preached. So I still don't know who preached this sermon originally, but there are ten other guys out there who are preaching it. I I don't want to plagiarize, at least overtly, uh, and so I want to at least say, this is not original with me, and I'm not sure who it was, but I think it was God. So, 
we all have a perspective on truth. What, I've said this many times, what you believe to be true is what you act upon, right? Uh, Ultimately, if you don't think something is true, you're not going to do it. Or if you try to do something that's not true, you're just going to be faking it for a little period of time, but you can't carry it on out. Ultimately, you act upon what you believe to be true, and what you believe to be true is called your worldview. That's the prism or glass or view that you have of the world and everything around you. You interpret events and life and truth and what's right and what's wrong and what's not right and what's not wrong through your view of the world. So what I want to examine today is how do we get this worldview? And more importantly for the moment, what is the lie that we've probably all bought into, whether we know it or not, and how is it at work within our lives, and how can we overcome this lie? How can we get reoriented to follow truth? So, Tom, today I'm asking, answering, what is truth? Just for, for you. Okay, number one. <laughs> That's an old joke between me and Tom. Sorry. Number one is <laughs> this. Recognize, recognize that there is an ancient lie. Recognize that there is an ancient lie. What we're up against is nothing new. As a matter of fact, it's as old as mankind. Remember, uh, I don't know how many of you were at the life groups the other night. Um, Chris Hodges, we watched a video of Chris um, talking about Genesis 3. He looked at this passage about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life. I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. But you'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, God made a man and he made a woman. Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden and he said to them, hey, This whole place is for you. Enjoy it. Subdue it. Do do the work I've created you to do. The one thing I don't want you to do is to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil that's right here in the middle. Just don't eat of it. One day, Eve is in the garden when the serpent, which is a euphemism for the devil, uh, comes to her and questions what God says. Here's what he says in Genesis 3.1. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I don't want to take this apart too much, but, you know, the, the devil is a liar. I mean, he's the father of lies. That's his job description. He accuses and he lies. So he comes to the woman and he quotes, he thinks, what God has said. Did God really say Don't eat of any tree. Well, that's an easy one. I mean, there is a kernel of truth there. There is one tree he said not to eat of, but the devil takes it and goes broad with it. God is holding out on you. He has said, don't eat of any tree in the garden. Now, to Eve's credit, she corrects him partially. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So she's correcting him, and she's probably feeling good about herself. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Now she adds to what God has said, and and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, God did say, if you eat of it, you'll die, but not the whole touching thing. By the way, there's truths and lessons here about the word of God and how to interpret the word of God. Don't add to it. Don't expand to it. Just receive it for what it is. 
serpent corrects her. You will not surely die. Now he's outright challenging the word of God. God may have told you you die, but you are not going to die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent comes and he appeals to her and he challenges the word of God. He lies to her both overtly and indirectly about what God has said and what will happen to her if she experiences what God has said don't experience. Here's the verse I want us to focus on. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Here's the ancient lie in its basic form. Don't trust God. Trust your own senses and conscience. Don't trust God or his word or spirit. Trust instead your senses and your conscience. Is this not the mantra of today? Look, just trust yourself. Trust what you feel. Trust what you sense. Look around you. Is it, is it not pleasing? Is it maybe bring you wisdom? Will it not satisfy you? Here's the problem. Your senses, first of all, cannot be trusted. Your senses cannot be trusted. I could go through every single one of the senses and talk about how you cannot ultimately trust your senses because they'll let you down. Give you a couple instances. Anyone ever got poison ivy? Hello? Anyone ever get poison? What is your reaction? I want to scratch. My sense says scratch. Everything on me says, please scratch this, please scratch this, please scratch this. And what do you do? You start scratching, but what's going to happen? It's going to spread. It's going to get infected. I mean, the list of things that, but your sense says, please scratch here. My senses are starting to go. (laughs) This past week, I I went to, um, I probably shouldn't put this on tape, but I'm going to anyway. I went to uh, get a new driver's license. Um, I, I had to get that star ID. My driver's license had expired. If you know what a star ID is, you need to look at it before too long. But anyway, so I got all my paperwork. I went to the driver's license. Me and Kathy went to the driver's license place. And I'm thinking, I got everything I need. I'm going to, this is no problem. We're going to, first thing they do is, the lady goes, do you wear contacts? Yes, I wear contacts. Okay, you need to take an eye exam. Everybody got to take an eye exam. Well, I, you know, they have this thing you look through to take your eye exam. Well, just last month, I went to the doctor, the eye doctor, and they changed all of my prescriptions. And what they did was, because I'm getting old, I have trouble reading up close. So they said, let's try this. Let's give you a contact for distance and one for reading. You with me? 
One for distance, one for reading. And they say your brain will adjust over time, which it does. It's remarkable. I mean, I can look down, I can read, I can look up, I can see. It's, I don't know how your brain does it, but it adjusts until you have to look in the thing. And I mean, there's no way I'm, I'm thinking, there's no way I cannot see at that distance with my left eye because the whole reading exam is set for further away, distance. So I said to her, I can't, I can't read it. And she goes, well, you got to read it. You're going to fail. I said, okay, what are my options here? She said, well, let's go out in the hall and do an eye exam with the chart. Maybe that'll help you. I go out in the thing, and I mean, she says, put your hand over your right eye. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, with my right eye, you, you guys are blurry. With my, like this, you're great. But with my, like this, blurry, great, blurry, great. So... I said to her, what do people, I told, I explained to her my situation. Surely they're reasonable at the DMV, right? So I explained to her my situation. I got one for distance, one for reading, and she goes, oh, you got you you to read this line with your left eye or you're not getting your driver's license. I said, what do people do? She said, well, they have to go home and get their glasses. Well, because Kathy and I have found we don't like the DMV in Birmingham. We've gone to Tuscaloosa to get... Um, because I knew I could get my star ID. I'm going on with this story, but I'm going to get there in just a second. My senses have failed me. I'm totally ashamed to confess this. I said to the lady, maybe if I go to the bathroom, I can rearrange my contacts, and then I can read the line. She said, sure, go ahead. My idea was I'm going to go to the bathroom and switch my contacts. I'm going to put the distance one on my left and just come back, and then I'll pass. Because I can see fine. This is not a cheating kind of thing, right? (laughs) It's about to be. Because she steps aside, and as I go past, and I memorize the two lines. (laughs) Every good boy does fine. Yeah, there we go. Right there. Got it down. Got my license. Got out of there. Talk about relativism, right? The point is this. You cannot trust your senses. You cannot trust Jack. Please don't go to the DMV and tell him, hey, my pastor's cheating on his eye. Yeah, thanks. Here's the deal. We literally, literally have blind spots. We can't trust what our senses are. It says in Proverbs this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end... It leads to death. And if the author of Proverbs didn't think this was important, he would not have said it twice in two different places, identically the same. What we sense, what we think, what we actually feel may be right to us, but it could be absolutely wrong. Our conscience is corrupted as well. Our conscience is built upon our own moral code. And then we judge how well we're doing based on our moral code. That's why we can have so many people feeling good about what they're doing and so many people doing so many different things. I mean, for instance, if I don't think it's wrong to have multiple sexual partners, then I can feel good about sleeping around. If I don't feel like it's wrong to cheat on the eye exam, then I can... You see the point? 
We let our conscience be our guide. The problem with our conscience and all of us, and I confess mine as well as yours, is corrupted. We cannot depend on our senses. We cannot depend on our conscience. But the ancient lie is this. Hey, if it feels right, how can it be wrong? Go ahead. Taste and see. Even Paul talks about his own conscience in 1 Corinthians 4.4 when he says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Second point is this. We need to recognize first that there is a lie out there. Here's the issue. We need to realize that the lie is at work in our own lives. It is at work, and I've written down some statements that I, where I feel like in my own life and in the lives of people that I've counseled with over the years, where I've seen this lie at work in our various lives. So I just want to give you four of them. There's probably tons of them, uh, but I just want to give you uh, four of them today. The first lie that I've heard said that just is an indication, excuse me, a statement that I've seen as an indication that lie is work in our own lives is, is something goes like this. I've got a total piece about it. I've got a total peace about this deal. Here's what I would say. People end up all the time in the hospital as a result of doing something they had a total peace about. When I was in college, (laughs) when I was in college, it sounds so stupid now, but then it seemed fine. We would have this thing called lights out wrestling. We'd have a night of low. Lights out wrestling in a dorm room. And what we would do is we'd clear all the furniture out as much as could be moved. We'd put it in the hallway, turn the lights out, and then there'd be six or eight guys wrestling in a dorm room. Lights out wrestling. We saw nothing wrong with this. I mean, really, we thought, hey, it's fun. We did it a bunch. I'm not talking like a one-time event. Until someone got badly hurt. Can you imagine? How could you possibly get hurt? in a dark dorm room with six to eight guys having a night of low, um, just wrestling. Well, Miller Cunningham split his ear, like, down. I mean, like, split it where he could, like, take it, you know, like this kind of split. And so, I mean, we're wrestling. Next thing I know, somebody turn the lights on, somebody turn the lights on, somebody turn the lights on. We get, and there's blood everywhere, and, wow, your ear is split. We go to the hospital. It's like the day before Miller's birthday. I think it's the day before his 19th birthday. So, you know, 18-year-old boys have no brains between them. I don't even, they shouldn't even let him go to college and be without a mommy there near somewhere. So we go to the hospital. It's the day before his birthday. I'm sitting with Miller, you know, and the nurse is going, hey, goes, how old are you? And Miller goes, what time is it? Because his birthday's the next day, and it's like close to midnight, and he's thinking... Well, I want to tell her exactly how old I am. And she's like, hey, listen to me. Don't talk back to me. Tell me how old you are. Okay. Got his ear all stitched up. Listen, we feel fine about things all the time that could lead us right down a path of destruction. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? 
I mean, it's so bad. Who really knows how bad it is? Judges 17.6 says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I mean, these people had a total peace about it. I got a total peace about this. Now, listen, we, we Christianize or make all of these statements religious. Here's the religious version. I've prayed about it, and I've got a total peace about it. I've prayed about this, and I've got a total peace about it. Listen, if you're praying about whether you should have multiple sexual partners, God's already spoken on this issue. And many, many others. Your peace about it is irrelevant compared to what God has already said. All right, let me go through the rest of these. I don't want to delay too long. This is what everyone else does. This is what everyone else does. Now, you think you get over that, you know, as you get older, but you don't really. In Genesis 6, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Here's the thing. All the people had corrupted their ways. The majority was ruling. The idea of checking with everyone else in the fallen world to decide my morality is foolish. What is truth is not determined by a majority vote. Here's another statement. This is how God made me. This is how God made me. A desire, drive, or tendency is not an excuse or license to carry it out. I mean, across the board. Paul says, just a couple of passages, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Nothing good dwells in my sinful nature. God made you, but we all live in a fallen state. Do not be deceived, it says in Galatians. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to what? Please his sinful nature, pleasure, nature. God wants me to be happy. I'm going to go with this nature. If I go to please it, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Listen, there's God's truth, and then there's our nature that brings us pleasure for the moment. But we need to we have a choice. Do we walk in truth or pleasure? Now listen, for those of you who are sitting there thinking about um, gay marriage right now, and thinking, oh yeah, this is what we need. I, just put that issue aside and just ask about your own life. Because there are elements where you may be blaming others, but I would contend almost every single one of us sitting here today is doing something that pleases our sinful nature. Ask instead for the Holy Spirit to bring light to us right now rather than saying, I'm going to use this as a defense against something. Here's what I'm asking for us is to determine for us, are we really walking in truth or is that lie at work in our lives? I mean, quite honestly, I come from a long line of angry men. Now, you may not know it, knowing my dad, but um, 
My great-grandfather had a bad temper. My grandfather had a terrible, terrible temper. My dad had a bad temper. My brother, oh, he's horrible. And then there's, <laughs> there's me. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of angry people. I mean, I could dismiss it and say, you know what? It's just genetic. I've spent a lifetime battling my nature through the power and grace of God, trying to not respond out of anger. Now, my anger is not like a violent, terrible, throwing stuff, hitting stuff, but my sarcasm can go, oh my goodness, it's horrible what I've said to people at times. I'm ashamed of, in my rightness, how my anger has come out and the damage it's done in people's lives. I mean, if the person at Burger King was not fast enough with my Whopper, I mean, I would drive up, hey, do you all know what fast food even means? Do you know that definition at all? I mean, things that I would say. We all have those things, and I could dismiss it. I'd say, yeah, you know, this is just the way God made me. Jesus, in the illustration of the rich young ruler, is talking to the guy, and the guy says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, oh, you need to obey the commands. Love God, love people, keep the Sabbath, do this. The guy goes, yeah, I'm good. I've done it all. Jesus says, okay, then, good. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Oh, i got a problem with that one. He loved money. And Jesus talks about the love of money, but really what Jesus is talking about is, look, you can either choose to follow your nature and what brings you pleasure, or you can choose to follow me. Anyone who knows what's right to do, the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. Anyone. Here's the other one. <clears throat> That's how God made me. Oh, oh, I love this one. My situation is unique. Mine is different. Pastor, you don't, you don't know how bad my husband treats me. So therefore, I can talk to him like I want. I can not respect him. My situation is unique. Oh, Pastor, my wife, she really... She, she won't have sex with me anymore because she didn't really like sex or she's got a physical issue or whatever may be going on. So my situation is unique. So pornography or sleeping around, is, God's given me an out. We all think we've got outs on these different things because we think our situation is so stinking unique. The temptation in your life are no different than what everyone else experiences. But God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. All of these lies are at work in our lives. And we either succumb to the lies and give in, we experience license to sin in our lives, or, for many of us, I don't want to... um, I can't stay here long, but we, we fall in the other ditch, which is legalism. Rather than walking in life, we either go with license or legalism. And legalism says, I got all the rules. I'm just following the rules. Boom, 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 boom. Follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules. Did, do you guys, um, does anybody watch football here? 
You know, there's a big game tonight. There's a running back for the Seattle Seahawks, Marshawn Lynch. He hates the media. And so, like last year, he refused to fulfill his contractual obligation to give an interview to the media before the game that they were in last year, so he got fined $50,000. $50,000. Now, to him, it wasn't a big deal. This year, they thought, he's going to do it again. So they said, if you don't go, we're going to find you $200,000. So he said, okay, I'll go. How long do I have to do it? Five minutes. You have to do a five-minute interview answering questions. Did you see his interview? He went in, he set his phone down, and set the alarm for five minutes. <laughs> 30 questions were asked of him, and he said, I'm only here so that I don't get fined. That was his answer to 30 questions. I'm only here so that I don't get fined. So what do you think about the game? I'm only here so that I don't get fined. What color jersey are you going to wear? I'm only here so that I don't get fined. He fulfilled legally his contractual obligation. Now they're trying to figure out a way to find him. The NFL is saying, we, but surely there's a way we can find him. He did what he was told. You've got to go for five minutes and answer questions. Some of us live life like that. Okay, I'm not going to follow this lie, but I'm only going to do what i got to do. I'm going to hold to the letter of the law, and neither of those are life-giving. Here's the final point of today, and we're going to be talking about this in the days ahead, which is reorient your life to truth. Reorient your life to truth. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. When we come to Christ, we receive by grace his power to save us and the person of the Holy Spirit to change us. Romans 1, after this, goes on to say, look, here are two paths. There's the path of God, which is the transformational power of the gospel. Or there's the path of your own desires. Which one do you want to go with? God's path, the gospel, it is the power of God to change us, or Do you want to go down this other path? Now, Paul says, hey, God will let you go down this other path. He uses the phrase, which sounds really horrible, but God gave them over to their own desires. But basically what he's saying is, hey, if you want to go this way, God will let you go this way. Your choice is, am I going to follow truth or am I going to follow my own conscience and senses? Which path am I going to follow? And you can't go down both paths at the same time. You either follow the transformational path of the gospel, let God's good news transform you, or you're going to go down the path of your own desire. Figure out with me, if you would, for a second. It's a little test. What's wrong with the following article? You, you, you there? Okay. A Tennessee man's house. This is from CNN late last year. A Tennessee man's house was robbed as a woman dipped in his pool naked. I know you're thinking, oh, that's the wrong part. Just hang on. It gets worse. As he gawked at the swimmer for a good 20 minutes, a burglar got to work. He stole jewelry, medication, and a firearm. The couple, the couple, the naked wife and her burglar husband, who lived nearby, approached Stephen Emerald. Now, that's really wrong, too, putting his name in the paper. 
with the wife asking if she could swim in his pool. The wife sent her husband to get her cigarettes, then asked Amaral if he would be bothered if she swam naked. Amaral's reply, not a problem. Here's the quote from Amaral. Here's, I went, I went and got her a towel. She dried off, and all of a sudden she was soaking wet again. I escorted her outside and invited her to church, but she said she didn't have time for that. She wasn't ready for that. (laughs) At what point did this guy think, I'm going to invite this naked woman to church? (laughs) Can I swim naked in your pool? Sure, go ahead. Half hour later, hey, you want to go to church? What, what? I, I mean, at some point, as stupid as this sounds, we think we can walk both paths at the same time. We think we can live these separate lives. Here's my church life. Here's my naked woman in the pool life. Oh, and I'll invite her to church. That'll make it all seem right. We do the same thing. All of us at some point. Romans 12, 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Your conscience is only trustworthy when it's lined up with God's word and his spirit. You should write that down. Your conscience is only trustworthy when it's lined up with God's word and his spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for what? Teaching. It'll teach you what is true. Rebuking. Show, Show you what's wrong. Correcting. Correct your path. Get you right back on the right path. And training in righteousness. It'll help guide us and grow us and transform us. And this all happens by the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work within us. John 14, 26. But the counselor of the Holy Spirit and the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Here's the foundation for what we're going to look at in the days ahead. And I, I want to say this unapologetically, but in love and in grace. To say, left to myself, I would follow my own conscience and my own senses. Here, let me tell you what I think is right and what is wrong. Problem with that is, I am untrustworthy. I mean, you may think, well, that's quite a statement of the pastor. Well, left to my own devices, in my own conscience, my own senses, they will betray me. So what is my alternative? I'm going to follow God's word in his spirit. What does God's word say based on the interpretation and person and work of the Holy Spirit? And we all, if we're going to to navigate the days ahead, we have to reorient our minds to truth. Because the ancient lie is at work in all of us. It's at work in your families, It's at work in our culture. It's at work in our individual lives. Our only hope is by the grace of God to 
reorient ourselves to truth. Now, here's the great news. The power of the gospel is transformational. It's not legalistic. It's not me standing up here and telling you, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. What we're going to do in the days ahead is lean into the transforming power of the good news of Jesus Christ and to hear what God says about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be married or single? What does it mean to pursue pleasure? Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that today you will give us wisdom about how we can see our lives transformed by the power of the good news. I pray against several things here today. Number one, I pray that the truth of God will prevail over the ancient lie of the enemy. Did God really say, trust your senses. If it looks good, if it satisfies you, if it'll bring you something better, go for it. No, may we instead stand on the word of truth that's life-giving and transformational. And I pray also against the other scheme of the enemy, which is to condemn us. To know that by the power of God's grace, we have good news that brings us life. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here today where we need to reorient our minds to truth. We may not even know how to do it, but I pray that by the power of God's Spirit at work within us and by the truth of God's Word that has been given to us and the Word made flesh, we will change. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you, we glory in you today. In Jesus' name. I pray you take these notes and think about this and pray about it more and just ask for the revelation of the Spirit of God to be at work in your lives uh, in the days ahead. And I pray that you'll also invite some people to come. I believe we can present this in a grace-filled way that is both truth and at the same time holds out the glory of majesty of, of God and his kingdom and his family. We're going to take up an offering right now, and uh, for those of you who are guests, don't feel obligated to give in any way to our offering. This is for the people who are part of our family here, but what we would ask you to do is to take out your welcome card, your connection card, which is in your bulletin, fill out some information on it, put it in the offering when it's passed so that we can have the opportunity to pray for you. If you're a regular attender at Fullness, you know to uh, put that any prayer requests you have down on that card as well. Also, yesterday we had an outreach where we went out in the neighborhood and handed out um, daffodils. We covered like well over 200 homes in our neighborhood. It was, it was a fun morning, beautiful day to do that, and we had a great time doing it. Thanks to those of you who came. Also, there are a couple of ladies, women's things beginning this week. There's an event, and there's a Bible study, and all of that information is in your bulletin. Women, if you would please look at that. Make yourself aware. Final thing before we take up the offering, if you didn't come to Wednesday night, we have some incredible classes being offered um, on Wednesday nights this spring. And so um, everything from um, how to get engaged in outreach to life to uh, more intimacy with God to what is the kingdom of God, 
So I would encourage you to come on Wednesday night at 6.30. Of course, we have all the youth and children stuff, stuff as well. Let's worship God through the giving of an offering.